We're going to talk about some developments when it comes to forced treatment becoming legislation in Alberta. And questions, of course, about whether other parts of the country will see this take place as well. So Alberta is looking to spend a significant amount of resources on addictions and mental health in the next few years. Part of that is going to include moving forward on legislation in approximately two years that will allow addicts to be forced into recovery treatment as per a judge's order. Harm reduction experts say that this doesn't work, but it still remains something that the province is moving forward on. So What's the real answer here? And is Alberta heading down a path towards failure with this approach? We're going to get into it right now with harm reduction advocate for each and every, Ewan Thompson. Ewan, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate getting your perspective on this. Thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. It's great to be with you tonight. Ewan, let's just start with your reaction to this latest news, this this move that Alberta is going to try to inch its way forward to make the Compassionate Intervention Act legislation. Yeah, it's really unfortunate and and quite alarming uh, here in Alberta right now. We've got decades of evidence behind harm reduction practices, none of them, you know, having really been deployed at a level that would that would affect things at a population scale. But the Alberta government is turning its back on all of that evidence and in favor, really, of going after the same old strategies that we've been trying to use for about 100 years now. Um, with the results uh, laid bare in front of us now, um, particularly in Alberta over the last six months or so, eight months of, of really skyrocketing drug poisoning deaths and, and uh, ambulance calls and everything that goes with that. Um, we're, we're really in the deepest phase of the crisis now in Alberta, partly as a result of, of the policy maneuvering that's been uh, put into place over the last few years in Alberta. Talk you in, if you can, about what that crisis really looks like, because I think we talk about toxic drug supply um, and we throw that term around. We also talk about the fact that there is a crisis with so many people addicted. So what is really going on? Yeah, um, I think I think many people would argue that addiction is a part of the problem and, and solutions that involve, uh, you know, addiction treatment, voluntary addiction treatment, where people can choose to go in on their own volition are certainly part of the solution. Um, but but things get really dicey when you start going down into that involuntary kind of forced abstinence route where, uh, you know, police are kind of rounding people up and, and really just warehousing them in some cases in, in these institutions uh, against their will. Uh, they're going to lose all faith in the medical system from that moment forward in a lot of cases um, and, and certainly uh, with policing. So uh, you got to just think of it from from the perspective of people who use drugs. Um, they're using drugs for all kinds of reasons. You know, most of us use drugs. Most of us, in fact, have experienced an overdose if you've ever drank too much and you forgot what happened last night, you know, or, or passed out or something like that. Um, so so we've all kind of been down these roads in, with different types of drugs, maybe ones that we deem legal. But as far as the people that are using illegal drugs, uh, it's getting uglier and uglier out there every day with um, the volatility of the drug supply. Uh, we know that, you know, every time the police make a drug bust, the, the drug supply becomes more toxic. Uh, this is This is scientifically shown now. Um, where people are, are actually experiencing more uh, overdoses, more drug poisonings um, on the heels of a police drug bust. Um, so, so this is the sort of thing that people see down at the ground level every single day when, you know, the, one of the local dealers gets busted. Uh, everybody's now scrambling to backfill that supply and try and figure out, you know, what, what dose they're going to get the next, uh, you know, that day or, or the next day. Um, so someone so, might, yeah. be, might be having to go then to a different source where the supply is not familiar to them and therefore could be potentially toxic or could cause them to overdose. That's absolutely right. Yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah, so that, that volatility, that unpredictability in the strength and the composition of the drug supply is really behind the bulk of the deaths. It's, it's in large part not related to addiction or what we would conventionally think of as addiction. Uh, it's really, you know, people just trying to get by, maybe using drugs as, as a party uh, kind of tool or, or to deal with pain in a lot of cases, un, you know, un, unmanaged pain, chronic pain issues, a lot of construction workers, for example, um, or people who are unhoused and, and just really suffering out there uh, with, with everything they've got to deal with every day. Um, pretty understandable response to some really dire conditions if, uh, you know, to turn to, to substances to just sort of manage your day-to-day existence uh, under really tough circumstances. So, um, yeah, lots of reasons people use drugs. And, and I think, uh, you know, as, as a society, we just kind of need to get on with trying to figure out how we can help folks who, who are using drugs and, and pass with maybe a little bit less judgment uh, over them for it. You know, I appreciate you clarifying it in, in that way, because I, I think probably many more people have some experience um, with some substance, whether it's alcohol or maybe it's something else that maybe they're willing or not willing to necessarily acknowledge. But I think a lot of times when we have this conversation, we're thinking about that visible drug use. You know, we're thinking about the people that we're seeing that are clearly struggling, that are on the streets. And when we're talking about the Compassionate Intervention Act, there's always mentions, Ewan, about attempting to raise the quality of life for those addicted and getting someone off the street, which I think we can we can kind of call to mind right now that we've likely all seen. So is mm-hmm. that who this act is for? Are we talking about forced treatment for people who are addicted and homeless? Or is this a different demographic that we're speaking about? Who would fall into this category of receiving forced treatment under the Compassionate Intervention Act? Well, there, there's a couple of nuances to it, but but the general gist of it is that the Compassionate Intervention Act is about forced treatment. So it's about, you know, em- empowering the police, really, in a lot of cases, or, or families or, or physicians or whoever else, um, to, to be able to get a court order to force somebody into one of these facilities. Now, we have really good evidence that when people go into these facilities against their will, uh, a lot of the case, a lot of the times they're going to come back out and be at a much higher risk of experiencing a drug poisoning or overdose and therefore, you know, ending, ending up back in the medical system. Um, but what, what we're seeing in Alberta really is um, because we know that these harms fall so heavily on Indigenous people in Alberta, it's, you know, Indigenous people are at least seven times higher risk of, of dying of overdose. Uh, or drug poisoning than than non-Indigenous folks. Um, but they're also targeting workers because workers, construction uh, industry in particular, but also transport industry, um, are really, uh, uh, you know, disproportionately represented in, in these statistics for drug poisoning. You know, uh, 75% of the deaths really are, are men, um, and men in trades in particular are, are really uh, suffering the brunt of this. So, uh, you know, in my, in my view, this is really uh, geared towards targeting workers and targeting Indigenous people who have, you know, historically been uh, really under the thumb um, of, of governments in, in Western Canada. Uh, so, you know, any tool that we can grab to make sure that we can keep those folks under control um, is, is really going to be appealing to, to a government that's, that's, you know, shown itself to be pretty hostile to both groups uh, through its tenure. What about the argument from families who have lost someone to a drug overdose? They'll usually say that if they'd had the option to get someone into treatment, they would have taken it. Can you speak to that argument? 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, the best um, the best exa- really example to point to within that argument is is a group here called Moms Stop the Harm. They're national across Canada, and uh, th- they represent you know thousands of parents who have lost their children. And many of those parents actually put their children through forced abstinence. Um, I, you know, as mm. as somebody growing up in Alberta, I knew people that were put through those programs and and suffered enormous trauma as a result. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, some people who maybe are experiencing something like psycho- psychotic events, you know, psychosis, um, that, you know, can't be held, uh, you know, in some circumstances where, where it really is about protecting them, um, protecting their family and so on and so forth. Um, but, but that's such a rare thing in these situations. You know, most of the people we're talking about who are going into uh, these facilities against their will are, are people who are employed, uh, you know, and people who are rounded up from the streets that just don't happen to have housing. But but everybody knows somebody who, you know, didn't pass a urine screen and then got flagged by their employer to, to be forced into AA or be forced into 12-step um, or, or some kind of facility where they had to spend the next uh, few months and, and few years in a lot of cases proving to their employer that they were okay to come back to work. And like, one night where you go out and use cocaine or something like, are you kidding? This is the sort of thing that we really have to be uh, getting away from because these are not in most cases, harmful activities. They're just, they're just people being people. We're talking about forced drug treatment in a mandate letter to mental health and addictions minister, Dan Williams, Alberta's premier, Daniel Smith said that he must implement something called the Alberta model which is described as a support plan for those pursuing addiction recovery. Now, this is a controversial plan, the idea of forced treatment uh, being met with a lot of criticism from harm reduction experts and advocates. That's who we're speaking with right now. But first, this is Dan Williams, the Mental Health and Addictions Minister, explaining why the Alberta government feels the Compassionate Intervention Act might just be a good idea. There's not a compassionate way to deal with these people is let somebody maybe someone's mother, maybe someone's daughter, live on the cold streets of Edmonton um, with schizophrenia and an opioid addiction uh, and say that we're just going to let them stay there and suffer. Um, If they're a danger to themselves or others, this act is going to allow us to get them that treatment through a, a judge's court order. So is this the right move or is this just a huge step in the wrong direction? So says harm reduction advocates and experts. Uh, our guest, Ewan Thompson, is a harm reduction advocate himself for each and every. Ewan, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, thank you, Chelsea. Let's just talk a little bit about harm reduction and some of the misunderstandings surround it. I think people think a lot of times harm reduction means enabling drug users. So can you clarify and separate the idea of harm reduction between enabling? Yeah, harm reduction is just part of the spectrum of care. You know, we we need options for people is, is really the, the root of the issue here. Um, we can't just push everybody into the exact same mold because, you know, only some people can, can achieve abstinence and maintain it really and, and be safe that way. Uh, other people are going to continue using whether we like it or not and then eventually maybe find their way to, to using less and, and eventually abstinence if, if that's the path they that works for them, really, that they choose. Um, and harm reduction appreciates that. It just understands that everybody's kind of working at a different pace with different goals, different needs, and, and not all of us really need abstinence at the end of the day. You know, most of us still drink alcohol. Most of us uh, consume caffeine, and, and many of us are on antidepressants, and many of us are on stimulants. Um, and, and these are all fine. You know, like, it, it, 
so if, if we didn't, you know, have a harm reduction mindset around those sorts of things, then then a lot of us would be dropping dead, you know, because that one glass of wine that we had last night was contaminated with methanol, uh, or or the stimulant that we took uh, for our ADHD was contaminated with fentanyl. Um, and this is happening every single day on the streets. And without harm reduction, uh, we have no way to mitigate that. Hmm. You know, Alberta has said um, that they're going to be moving forward with building 11 new treatment centres in, in that province. Is there room, Ewan, for harm reduction and compassionate intervention? Can there be both that exist? Well, I, you know, the name of it is is a misnomer. Uh, it's not compassionate. It, it's really going to result in more deaths. And, and, you know, there's so much misinformation to untangle from Minister Williams' statement there where he's talking about, you know, what if this was your mother... Right. Uh, hooked on opioids with schizophrenia and stuff like first of all like your mother out on the street there might be using opioids to cope with her unmanaged schizophrenia or other mental health illness um, but she's not there because she was taking drugs in almost every case this is such a uh, um, such a baseless claim that's made very very frequently that you know people wind up on the streets because of drugs it is true in some cases um, but most cases, it's because of housing affordability and people having to run away from violent situations uh, or, you know, situations where they're unwanted in their home because of, uh, you know, various identities, gender, gender identities and so on. Um, these, these are the reasons people wind up on the streets in the first place most of the time. And, uh, and the reasons, you know, we talked a lot about the reasons why people might use drugs. But, um, you know, addiction is, is kind of comes in fifth or sixth around, uh, you know, why somebody might wind up on the street. Um, so we, uh, we we have to appreciate these things and stop sort of basing our policy on, on false assumptions like this. Um, because, you know, the more that we do that, the, the farther down this hole we're going to get and the more of our family and friends that we're going to lose or, or see, you know, continue to suffer out on the streets, um, you know, have to visit in hospitals, have to load into ambulances, all these sorts of things that we're all experiencing right now. Ewan, this is a big conversation and one that has been talked about with the just the idea of what the Compassionate Intervention Act could be, if it will come to be, uh, that's been talked about for the last several months. And I've had a lot of conversations about it. I think that you've done a really good job uh, of bringing this to, to life to make people really understand that harm reduction needs to be the way forward and that this isn't the right strategy. So thank you so much uh, for your great perspective. Uh, what a great start to the show. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, Chelsea. Anytime. Thank you. We talked on the show this week about this being the summer of strikes, everything from the B.C. port strikes to the Metro grocery workers strike. There are labor disputes in so many different industries here in Canada, but also strikes across the American border that are making headlines and will inevitably affect us here as well. The writers and actors strike in Hollywood. What is it all about? And what does it mean for the future of entertainment? So this involves the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild American Foundation of Television and Radio Artists. They're both seeking guarantees, including improved compensation, which is what a lot of these strikes have to do with, and protections from the use of artificial intelligence, which we're going to get into in a little bit more detail. The writer's strike started in May. The actors just joined mid-July. And there's been a lot of conversation about this. Disney CEO Bob Iger said that these demands aren't realistic. You can get a sense of the tension in the response to that statement by Brian Cranston, uh, who addressed directly Disney CEO Bob Iger. 
But we ask you to hear us and beyond that to listen to us when we tell you we will not be having our jobs taken away and giving to robots. our right to work and earn a decent living. And lastly, and most importantly, we will not allow you to take away our dignity. So you can definitely get a sense of the passion there from Brian Cranston and just how tense these times are. That's him attending a SAG after a strike rally excuse me, in New York City and, as I said, addressing Disney CEO Bob Iger. So let's get some clarity on exactly what this strike is all about and how it could impact Canada as well. Our guest is a Canadian actor and producer, Julian Dezotti. Julian, thank you so much for making time for the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You mentioned recently in an article that I saw that these issues are cataclysmic, and I don't think that you're throwing that word around lightly. So can you expand on that a little bit and just help clarify exactly what this strike is all about? Well, I think we're at a, just a really uh, you know, significant time in, in our particular business. Uh, you know, These kinds of strikes happen. You know, The last time uh, the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild striked together was 1960. You know, and that was at sort of the advent of uh, theater production, movies in theaters and moving into television and actors being compensated when there's a major technological change. And we're in the midst of that now with AI and also the streaming business. Um, there was a very you know, profitable broadcast uh, TV business and movie business. And uh, a lot of the Hollywood studios pivoted to uh, chase uh, the streaming business because it is the future. Um, But unfortunately they upended a financial model and now they want to be able to make the same television, the same movies uh, without compensating actors and writers uh, in, in the way that, that, that evolves with that kind of change. Explain that a little bit, Julian, for people that aren't necessarily part of this industry, uh, but just consume it. So when we're talking about um, profits being made off of streaming looking different than regular broadcast television, what does that mean? It it means that, you know, streaming, uh, a lot of the, you know, the shows that you're now watching are shorter episodes. You have eight episodes rather than uh, 23. Um, And, you know, a lot of the time actors specifically make their money off of residual payments. So usually you're an actor on a television show and you're running for, you know, 20 episodes. It's it's a full-time job for most of the year. But now say you're working on a television show and you only get seven or eight of those episodes that's a, a less of a chunk of time that you're that you're working full time. Now, what happens is in the midst of the time when you're not working, you get residual payments. So the 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 show will get sold after it's originally aired. It gets sold to uh, uh, you know what we call syndication, so another channel or a streamer, and an actor sees a percentage of that revenue that gets made. But what's happened now is that a show will get made by Netflix and it will live on Netflix essentially forever. So the actor gets paid one time, which is their day rate for their fee for acting. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. They don't make another penny off of it. So that money is essentially going somewhere, but it's not, some of that is not going into the, the, the actor or the, or the writer's pockets. So they're essentially losing out on a, a lot of the money that they usually would, would make uh, off a television show. 
And streaming has become an absolute juggernaut, as I think we can all really understand, which I, I think now we can kind of appreciate that this tension has been sort of coming to a head and almost reaching a boiling point, which is what we're seeing right now for quite some time. Uh, these tensions aren't something that has just cr- been created overnight. The idea of AI and automation, I think, being a component in so in this strike and in so many other labor disputes is a really interesting one because we're really at the the crux of this point of really understanding what AI is going to do in terms of creating efficiencies in so many different industries. So, you know, you speak about the potential of AI getting misused while still wanting to embrace the fact that it can be used for good and it likely will in a lot of instances. Talk about the misuse of AI when it comes to these industries. Well, I think it's the ability for uh, an AI to write a script, and rather than hiring a writer to write that script, they're going to hire a writer at a very fractional fee to do a polish or a punch-up of a script. Because when an AI writes a script, and I've used ChatGPT um, to help me with research or to help me to find a a different word, like a synonym for a different word that I want to use. And so it, it 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 can be a marvelous tool but to then have it write a script it's like it it turns out what i call like a a bad first draft so something you know whenever we write an email or a letter we have to go over it make sure that it sounds right it sounds authentic it's spelled and grammar all that kind of stuff that's essentially what chat gpt does the first time and what i think the fear is is that studios in a cost-cutting measure are going to employ AI that can work a lot faster in creating original ideas can just churn out a bunch of treatments, a bunch of scripts that are all really low grade. And then you hire the professional writer who would have taken the time to really think about that on a human level, because ultimately stories are something that we relate to. These are storytelling is one of the most, you know, original things that we did as a human species. So, so it's ingrained in our DNA. And so now to have an AI replicate that it, it is only regurgitating what it is learning uh, what the, da- the data that it's been fed. So it learns off of the scripts and the movies and all the thing that, things that have been fed to it. So it's basically regurg- regurgitating a copy of something that's already come before rather than something that become, comes original from, from a human brain. So there is a distinction, and I think studios will try and take the, 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 uh, the ability to be more efficient, and they'll ask writers to you know, do it at just a, a much lesser fee and you know writers are most the majority of writers are not you know ryan murphy aaron sorkin those are the top or or shonda rhimes those people make hundreds of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. most writers this is a middle to lower class way of life and so to to be able to get paid less for what we do already it's just not going to it's not a sustainable way to make a living. And I think that's the fear is that that technology will get misused. Uh, I'll also give you another quick example on the acting side. Yeah. One of the proposals from the studios was, oh, we want to be able to, you know, background actors. So the background is, you know, someone who walks by in a scene, doesn't have any lines. We want to be able to, rather than pay for that person every time they're on screen, we're going to pay for them once and then use their likeness, and we should be able to own that in perpetuity 100% forever. And that means that that background actor will get paid once, one day, and will never get a chance to (laughs) do that job ever again. And that was one of their first sort of negotiating uh, 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 points that they put forward. So what ultimately AI... Producers are going to find a way to, to make efficiencies and things like that. So essentially do it a different way, which would be, you know, compensation and consent. If you want to use our likeness, 
fine. Give us the ability to say yes or no, and then compensate us for that. So you might not get the actor full time every day on set, but now you can use them half the time. And it's a way of at least you're still paying them a reasonable amount of money for the job that they would normally have been doing. And that's just really what it's about. It's, it's about putting the guardrails in now because I can tell you the studios are already using this top technology to the hilt and they're already finding ways to use it without involving actors or producers or writers. So if we put the guidelines in now, there at least would be a way that we can sort of find a way forward in terms of uh, salvaging uh, our way of life and the amount of money that we can make. Yeah, I mean, there are creative workarounds, certainly, and there are efficiencies to be found here. Um, But this sounds a lot like just really taking advantage of people. And and that's really just not, it's not fair. It's not ethical. You talked a little bit about, oh, sorry, go ahead. I agree. Well, I was just gonna say, I agree. And it's also, I think people have this romantic idea in their mind of what moot actors and writers do. It's either a glamorous life, you make a lot of money, you should be so lucky that you get to do anything. And so I think it's like, Yes, we chose this life, but it's an artistic pursuit, and it is a, a lower to middle class life. So anyone just wants to be able to do a good job, be proud of their work, and provide for their family, just like any other industry. And I can tell you that AI is, is going to have the same kind of effects in every other industry out there. So it's not just us mm-hmm. that are being effective. It's, it's, it's everybody. So, you know, I think people have a, a curiosity about what these strikes are going to mean for their entertainment, for their favorite shows, for production. What is that going to realistically look like, not only in the States, but here for Canadian consumption as well? Well, I think you'll it'll, it'll reach a point where you'll start to see some of your favorite shows just not, not returning. Um, if, if it reaches, uh, I'd say, into October or November, you, I, I believe a lot of the studios and the corporations have, you know, they've, they've seen this coming and they've planned for that. So you, you'll see in September that CBS is now going to be airing. So you turn on your television, you go to CBS, whatever it is, Channel 15 or 16, it's going to be Yellowstone reruns. So Yellowstone, which you'd only be able to watch on Paramount Plus or any other streamer, I think it's Amazon here, they, they are now just going to run that show on broadcast television because they don't have uh, a new show to show you uh, or they can't have any of the returning shows that they, they had already would have shot um, over uh, the summer to come back. So I think if the strike drags on past the fall, you'll start to see not only television shows that you like are not, will be delayed uh, or might not come back. It's the same with summer movies. A lot of these bigger movies, I think the one that comes to mind is the new uh, Zendaya movie that was supposed to premiere at Venice. That's now already been pushed to 2024. So a lot of things will get pushed and it, it will just result in sort of a vacuum of content. So it'll be a lot of reruns. It'll be a lot of stuff that you, you've seen before. And what that means sort of as an existential problem to the, the industry, I don't know. It might mean you're going to go on TikTok a lot more. It might mean mm. you're going to go watch reality television a bit more. Right. Uh, it might mean you'll watch AI a bit more. Like, who knows what this this uh, uh, will do? Um, it, it's, it's, it's tough because, we, you know, you don't – what happens is if people don't – we go to a streamer because a lot of the times people will join Netflix for, you know, three months because it's like, oh, it's Stranger Things is back. The only reason I have Netflix is because I want to I want to watch Stranger Things or I want to watch Succession on HBO. And as soon as that's done, I cancel my subscription. Well, what's going to happen is none of these shows are going to return. 
So the streamers aren't going to have the subscribers and the revenue, and therefore they're going to use that to justify making less and less content. So it's this sort of vicious circle, uh, and we don't want that because if it's less content is being made, that means there's less work for writers and directors and actors and, and producers. So it is a sort of vicious cycle that we need to put, you know, you need to put your, uh, your feet down and you need to negotiate, uh, you know, proper living wage and protections against AI. But at the same time, it's, it, it's a really hard decision because this could have these lasting effects that, you know, started with COVID and now might continue. You know, you mentioned a few options there that I think some of the studios could lean into um, using AI a little bit more. Uh, there's been a reality TV boom because, of course, it's unscripted and mm-hmm. you don't need mm-hmm. actors on a contract to, to do those and to, and to make those shows. So how Absolutely. stubborn are the studios being right now? Are, are those negotiations looking promising or are they saying, look, we have other options right now? It might not be the quality program that consumers want, but they're, where else are they going to turn? You know, it, it, it beats me. I know that the AMPTP, which is the the organization uh, that represents the studios in the union negotiating against the Writers Guild of America and against SAG, they are going to start talking to the WGA tomorrow. So there's been sort of this, you know, they as soon as the writers went on strike, they both sides stopped talking. And now there is, you know, they're going to resume, apparently going to resume talking uh, tomorrow. Um, but but it, what's going to happen is, is anyone's guess. There's a lot of, I know, back channeling with lawyers trying to, you know, you know, people talking on the sides, trying to get communication going again. Um, it's, it's also a PR war, right? Like, and I think the, the writers and the actors are currently winning that war. It feels like most people agree with why the, maybe they might not like it, but at least they agree. You know, they understand why the actors and and writers are striking. So and you know what, to be be completely honest, I mean, actors and writers are so used to being unemployed most of the time and, you know, sort of (laughs) struggling for work or an auditioning or pitching yourself that, you know, yeah, that might mean I have to lean into my, you know, my Joe job or my side hustle to 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 wear out, you know, um, to survive the storm. And and I think it because it is such an important negotiation, and because if we don't do this now, it will be irrevocably changed in terms of the amount of money that we can command for our work and the amount of protections we can have against AI. It 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 feels like we have to sort of do this and also stick together. I think having the actors and the writers together um, just, again, it's, it, it presents more of a united front and it makes the studios, um, you know, think twice about sort of the, the, their plans for the future. It's a really important stance to take because I think that this is going to be something that we're going to see more of in other industries as well. So, uh, you know, there's there's yes. big donations being made from people like The Rock, from Dwayne Johnson, uh, supporting right. SAG and AFTRA to try and keep people afloat uh, while this strike continues. So, you know, there is support and there are really there is a lot of people lending their voices and their funds to try to get this thing to where it needs to go. Uh, Julian, thank you so much for your great insight this evening. Uh, Really, really appreciate your time and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me and um, have a great night. Getting into a conversation now talking all about cannabis. So the stigma has really been lifted over the last several years here in our country. It's been normalized quite a bit. But even though it's been legal in our country for nearly five years, Canada is still really lacking in doing something 
very necessary, and that's testing the effects of cannabis on our bodies and on our health and releasing that information to a public that is using cannabis, some people using it every day. So what's getting in the way of testing and why is this so important? We're going to get into it right now with our guest who's a licensed pharmacist who previously created the medical cannabis program for Shoppers Drug Mart. Ken Weisbrod is joining the show. Ken, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me on. Let's just talk a little bit about what we do know about cannabis. How much is a mystery? What are we doing when it when we're talking about testing the effects on humans? Well, right now we're doing very little in the country to understand the uh, long-term effects of this drug, and especially in the combustible form. So not a lot's been happening. What's getting in the way, Ken, of doing something that seemingly would be very important for a country that has, as I said, you know, really normalized use of cannabis? You know, that's a great question. I, I honestly, I, I, I can't understand it myself. I, I've been on this journey for about a year and a half when I approached the government uh, with some um, information that we had that on tests that were conducted about 15 years ago. Uh, there are some very uh, small updated tests. But to be quite frank with you, I don't understand why Health Canada has pushed back and, and, and not answered the call for us. So it's very concerning. Yeah, and frustrating too. You know, there are some big voices that have been weighing in on this too. Um, Anne McClellan, who's former federal health minister, former deputy prime minister, um, you know, has said that not testing is almost as dangerous as approaching big tobacco without any sort of testing or framework for understanding what it could potentially be doing to our bodies. Do we have an understanding of what's really at stake here, Ken? Why is this so important to get the details for Canadians? Well, you know, I mean, if you think about it, we've got a great and amazing healthcare system, publicly funded, uh, you know, as a healthcare uh, practitioner and, and someone who, who works in the industry. Um, I've been a pharmacist for over 40 years, and it really, I, I travel internationally in some of my work, and I, I really hold up our healthcare system. It's wonderful. But what we're doing uh, with regards to the lack of oversight in cannabis and in, in combustibles on cannabis is really concerning, and it, it, it's a risk to our healthcare system. So I expected, you know, when I approached the government, and, and I had a, a series of meetings with Ann McClellan on this, and and we talked about it, and her expectation would have been that this would have gotten done post-legalization. And I waited a good four and a half years before I approached the government on this. And, and still, you know, going into its fifth year, nothing's been done. And it's really concerning when you think about smoking is the most preventable disease in the world. And what's coming out of these, uh, you know, combustible cannabis is ostensibly the same as it is in tobacco or potentially worse. We just don't know. Yeah, you know, there there are risks that we that we could maybe assume and that are sort of talked about in kind of a rumored way, this idea that smoking cannabis could have a similar risk to tobacco smoking, lung irritation, potential respiratory issues. I've heard and interviewed people before who speak about cannabis illnesses like extreme vomiting from chronic use. Are conditions like this more common than we think? Well, it's interesting, you know, I think that if, if you ask, you know, most people, they would assume that smoking it is safe. And maybe right. part of that is because of the whole medical cannabis equation. You know, when you hear medical cannabis, you assume it's safe and it's good for your health. And that just might not be the case. And, and what we did ask the government, let's just go get some 
results and let's do some testing on these products and find out exactly what we have. And yet that's fallen on deaf ears. So that is the biggest concern. And we're just looking for information. We never discussed it at any point, you know, eliminating the product or, or discontinuing it. Nothing, nothing of that sort was involved. We just wanted disclosure. And part of smoking abatement and, and the tobacco strategies is they're heavily tested tobacco cigarettes and they're disclosed. I mean, you probably saw just last week, the federal government is going to start printing warnings right on the side of an actual cigarette. So a whole different change when you look at tobacco as compared to cannabis for some reason. You know, I wonder if we've just gone so far now with embracing cannabis as a country that if we were to do widespread clinical trials and testing to find out that there maybe were detrimental health effects that users weren't aware of, if it would have any sort of mitigation effect. You know, you drive down the street, I think in most major cities here in Canada and there are so many cannabis stores and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, it really, I think speaks to the high demand that we have here in Canada. So would, would changing the conversation and talking about warnings and understandings about, about negative health effects actually have any kind of an impact at this point? Well, you know, as a pharmacist and someone, you know, who who worked in the industry and, and started the cannabis medical cannabis strategy for shoppers years ago, uh, it, it's really hard for, for healthcare professionals to discuss the product. And, you know, the rules under, around, around cannabis don't, don't really open us up to having real dialogue, which is concerning. You walk into, uh, there are thousands of stores across the country. You can't get any information. So that is another concern and something that we also wanted to address with the government. Uh, the drug is ostensibly smoked across the country and uh, it's consumed by a a wide range of ages but predominantly in young males Uh, and that is a concern for the long-term effects of what what Mm -hmm. we could be dealing with especially when you consider it's a publicly funded and a great healthcare system we are potentially putting it at risk down the road so I'm hoping that you know when we went public with this that we would open up a dialogue and get a lot of people concerned about it and let's go out and do some of this testing and get some disclosure and get a dialogue going with regards to what uh, our kids are ostensibly smoking. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a proponent for legalizing cannabis, but it does feel a little reckless and pretty irresponsible to have gotten to this point, almost having it legal for five years without really knowing or understanding some of those effects. What would you hope to see, Ken, in clinical trials and testing? What would, what would be a, where would be a good place to start? Well, you know, tobacco was recognized, you know, way back in the early 60s and its detrimental effects. Before that, it was used uh, in, 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 the, in the 30s and 40s from a health perspective, believe it or not. Uh, but when it did become uh, our, our knowledge that it was very detrimental to your health, it took another 30 years uh, for the World Health Organization to adopt the tobacco abatement strategy. And part of that is disclosure on admissions and toxicity of these products. So there's a lot of rigorous rules. So my hope would be eventually we would adopt some of those similar rules to our cannabis Legislation in Canada is, as you know, you know, is a, a leader in legalization on a national platform. And that's something that we should be taking the leadership role in right now, especially when you consider it's a publicly funded healthcare system that we are potentially putting at risk. We just don't have the information. So, again, the expectation is let's go get uh, these tests done 
And, and if they're showing what we believe they, they will show is that we get some disclosure and some openness to the public that are consuming the product. Because that's one of the highlights of tobacco legislation is disclosure and admissions and toxicity that are disclosed on the side of a package. And, and, and I don't know if you're a smoker, but uh, if you buy a package of cigarettes, you can see the pictures and, and the admissions and toxicity on the side of a package of cigarettes. There's nothing with regards to cannabis. There's no test done. There are no rules. So that's what we would love to see eventually. Again, you know, I've mentioned now a few times that you previously created the medical cannabis program for Shoppers Drug Mart. So, you know, in your experience working with patients that are using cannabis, what are some reasons that you think testing is so important? Obviously, without getting into specifics here because of confidentiality, what are some some issues or some problems that you might suggest after seeing people use it? Well, you know, just to, to answer your question on, on medical cannabis, cannabis has many benefits, but like every drug that you take, whether you're taking even an anti-inflammatory, they're a pro and con. So, you know, you, you should be speaking to a healthcare professional. Uh, unfortunately, you know, going into our fifth year legalization, what we have ostensibly in the country is a smokable vice uh, with really no oversight on it. And, and that is the, the biggest concern and have a, a huge lack of information about the way this drug is consumed and its side effects when you do smoke it. So that's probably the biggest concern that we should be addressing. And, and you know, it's not, you, you could take the benefits of legalization. I understood, you know, the Liberal government's uh, call to do that. And But post five years, we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. So that, that's something that should be addressed. And my hope is after this article was published uh, yesterday that the government stands up and, and, and comes and meets with, I've got a great healthcare board uh, involved in this, and we would love to be able to sit down with the government and, and have some of these tests performed. So that's what we're looking for. Yeah, of course, speaking about an article that was published in the Globe and Mail, it's titled, How's, How Safe Is Our Cannabis? If you want to check it out. And a lot of questions about the fact that we have not conducted clinical trials or tests here in Canada to see just how unhealthy it potentially could be. And maybe it's not, uh, but we as consumers really have the right to know exactly what it is that we're consuming and putting into our bodies. Ken, do you suspect that this just comes down to to money? You know, by slapping a warning label on cannabis, it could reduce the amount that people are consuming. Is this just about trying to to make sure that revenue stays high for this product? Well, I, again, I, 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 I hope that that's not the case. Um, I think that, again, you know, I understood the reasons for legalization. I think that, again, like any drug, there are pros and cons to it. Unfortunately, this drug is combusted and smoked extensively. If you look at the sales that are moving through on the recreational stream, that is what our, our, our consumers are buying. And, uh, Again, smoking is the most preventable disease in the world, and all of those sub-burn compounds that you see in tobacco exist in cannabis. In some instances, it, it, it looks like it's worse. We, Health Canada did conduct tests uh, about 15 years ago, and when I uh, saw those um, tests, that raised the call for me to, 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 to go this route and meet with the government. And a lot of people in the government did not even realize that those tests were conducted, which was unfortunate. And again, um, you can 
look at the article and and to what Anne pointed out, she had hoped that this would happen uh, going into certainly by the fifth year of legalization. So this is something that we really need to get done. And and, and my hope is that, you know, post this article and now radio interviews and the things that we're doing to get it out to the public, that, that everyone will stand up and say, it's time that we do very similar legislation that that we see in tobacco that would be really critical yeah just don't know exactly what we're dealing with exactly because we're smoking it we need to get a hold of this quickly it's important i think allowing allowing the public to keep using it and consuming it without knowing the details uh is really it's just unfair uh ken thank you so much for your time this evening really appreciate getting your thoughts on this Listen, thank you very much for taking the time and, and, and highlighting this uh, post the article yesterday. So I thank you very much for, for the time. Of course. So we're talking now about the Okanagan and its wines. It's hard to separate those two from one another. BC as a whole and their contribution to the wine industry is significant. And this year has presented some really difficult challenges. A significant cold snap over the winter damaged vineyards all across the Okanagan Valley. And now BC's wine industry is suffering another blow with the recent damaging wildfires. So there were already predictions of a 39 to 56% drop in wine and grape production this year because of the cold. But now we're talking about the impact of wildfires. What is that really going to look like? We're going to get into it right now with our guest, who's the president and CEO of Wine Growers British Columbia, Miles Proden. Miles, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, glad to uh, glad to be able to join you. Let's just paint the picture a little bit, and I think you're the best person to do it about the wine industry in the Okanagan and BC. Just how big of an export is it, and how much does it contribute to the province's overall well-being? Well, we just uh, finished an economic uh, impact study uh, just a year ago, actually, just uh, post-COVID, and uh, we were pleasantly surprised to see that we had continued to grow, and we're now about a $3.2 billion uh, economic impact here in the province. That's everything from uh, from the actual selling of the wine, but also the growing of the wine, the, the uh, by that I mean grapes, but the making of wine, the distribution and the tax contribution, that all adds, including tourism, by the way, as well, about a million visitors uh, come to uh, BC to visit a winery. And that's about uh, just over $3 billion worth of annual economic impact. I think it's obviously an industry that's really worth celebrating. It's a product that's certainly worth celebrating, but it's had some really serious challenges, especially over the last year, Miles. So let's just talk a little bit about the state of the wine industry after such a cold winter. Can you talk about the impact of that cold and what it had on vineyards and grape production? Well, absolutely. Uh, We had uh, an extreme weather event, we're calling it, and we can track it very specifically to December 21st and 22nd last year, where it got to uh, 30 below and slightly slightly lower than that, in some places 32 below. But what was unique about that is for the first time that extended all the way down south through uh, Penticton, through Oliver, down to Asuyus and the Washington state border. So uh, here in uh, Kelowna, um, it's not uncommon to get cold in the winter, but it's very uncommon for it to get that cold and very rare. It's been like 40, 50 years since it's gone all the way south that way. And wow. that's really impacted the vines and uh, what we're going to be able to pull off of them this year. So uh, we're really anticipating having a low volume year. But I think what, what that really talks about is uh, climate change. 
we've been seeing a decline in the amount of wine grapes that we've been able to produce uh, over the last five, six years. And if it's not a freezing event like we saw last December, it is uh, the atmospheric weather, uh, sorry, river conditions that we've been experiencing, uh, the heat domes. It just is really playing havoc, uh, Mother Nature, on on the growing aspect of it. And And to begin with, Winemaking starts in the vineyard. If you don't have grapes, you don't have wine. Can Miles, maybe this is a, a, a question that will show my ignorance in this area because I'm talking to you from Alberta, but conditions of optimal grape growth be replicated indoors? Could that eventually be an option or something foreseeable in the future? Well, I, you know, technically probably yes, but I mean, one of the very unique aspects of, uh, of grapes and grape growing and winemaking is something the French call terroir, and that is really about the essence of where you're growing your grapes. And so those who are, you know, maybe more technical or more, maybe more of an aficionado or what I like to call the wine weenies who really are into this, they can tell <laughs> literally where that grape has been grown, whether it's on the left side of uh, Yokanagan Valley or the uh, the east side, I should say, or the west side, they can tell. And that's really a nature or indicative of where it's been grown. Wow. So technically, perhaps indoors. But I think what's unique about grape growing, and, and, and the growers tell me this all the time, it's a vine, and it's a vigorous vine. And if you've got any kind of vine in the garden, you know just how, how quickly they grow and how, how likely they are to spread as a vine. Uh, you need to control that so that that focus isn't on growing green, it focuses on growing on growing grapes. And you do that mm. by stressing it, by regulating the amount of water you put on it so that it that you think it thinks that it needs to replicate and so it produces the grapes. So that's all part of it. But in the end, what you really need is the weather to ripen those grapes. So you can have lots of vines grow lots of places, grapes will grow lots of places, but to actually get the conditions to ripen those grapes to make a great wine is a very unique circumstance, and that requires heat in the day and cool at night, and that really only happens outdoors. And beautiful conditions like the Okanagan usually has. You know, Miles, I'll be honest, I haven't given a lot of thought to great production. Um, and maybe it's something that I've totally taken for granted. But when it comes to consuming wine, um, I very much enjoy it. And I know that, the, you know, the flavor profile is a really delicate balance in a lot of these situations. And now we're talking about something called smoke taint. So not necessarily the wildfires decimating vineyards, but the smoke in the air really impacting the flavor. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of that and just how hard or even impossible it is to then get that flavor out of a grape and reconstruct it? Yeah, no, that's it's true. Like uh, the smoke can really impact uh, a grape uh, and it's not just the taint. There's kind of a spectrum, right? Like there is the the smoke can affect the taste of, of the wine and all the way to a smoke to the smoke taint. And when we hit smoke taint, that really means that it's not uh, it's not a, it's not a product worth consuming. So it's interesting that with the fires we're seeing now here in Asuya specifically, um, aren't isn't it is not really that harmful to the grapes so far, right? I mean, it depends on how in the growing process they are. But what really impacts it is, and because we we've not really hit that stage where those clusters are at a point where the smoke, or more importantly, the ash, it's the ash that settles on the grapes 
that really gets gets that effect. If there's smoke in the air, and we've seen that over the last couple of years, uh, like everybody else, when uh, when smoke is in the atmosphere, it uh, it affects you as a person, but it also affects the weather conditions. It doesn't affect the grapes. You need ash to land on those grapes to really impact it to get what we worry about as smoke taint. And we haven't seen that. Um, I think what the fires are really more problematic in us for us are is that people see that on the news they assume that the Okanagan's on fire and they're canceling their trips to come out here and I can tell you I'm on the Naramata bench right now looking uh, over the lake on a beautiful evening it's clear and uh, I can see all the way down the, the lake and uh, it's worth coming here but I think that's where the impact comes it doesn't come on the wine per se it comes from people's you know, hesitancy to come out and visit and, and visit and, and meet and, and enjoy a BC wine at a BC winery. So we're talking a little bit about the misconceptions that people have after learning about the wildfires and, uh, you know, this this doom and gloom situation uh, that is obviously cause for concern, uh, but maybe it's a little bit misinformed when it comes to wine tourism for BC. So you're saying that the situation might not be necessarily as dire as we might be thinking that it is in terms of needing to change our tourism plans and now cancel trips out to the Okanagan, right? No, exactly. Listen, I don't want to. I don't want to take anything away from the seriousness of the fires. They are sure. they are real and they are uh, serious. And uh, thank goodness we've got uh, the professionals that are looking after us, uh, and everyone's digging in and and helping out one another for sure. That's that 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 is real and that is indicative, I think, of climate change. But I think the point is that uh, wine country, and not just here in the Okanagan, we've got some great wineries in the Creston Valley, uh, I think up in the Thompson around uh, Kamloops, the lower mainland in Vancouver, uh, on the island, and the Gulf Islands themselves. So the BC wine industry is fairly widespread, and uh, it's all open for business. And uh, really the best way to experience uh, a BC winery or BC wine is at the winery itself. Where else can you meet the uh, the grape grower, uh, the chief bottle washer, the winemaker, the tasting room manager? Because in many instances, these are small family operations, and those people are all tied up into one person. So you're really going to be talking to the person that's really dedicated to the wine. And the best way is to come and see it firsthand, wherever a BC winery is. And so uh, we very much are open for business and uh, look forward to uh, seeing people coming out. And that's, again, the best way to enjoy and making sure it's 100% BC. Miles, can you just speak a little bit about BC wine in general, the, the difference in flavor, the taste, maybe the um, just the significance of what makes it so special? Well, it's a good question because when we talk and go to uh, events around the world and uh, and we bring people in from around the world because, as you can imagine, most people uh, in wine producing uh, areas uh, who've been at this for uh, hundreds if not thousands of years um, are surprised to learn that we can uh, not only just grow grapes but make great wine here in uh, Canada specific, in general and in BC in specific. Uh, it's really about the climatic conditions. I spoke earlier about the you can grow vines and grapes pretty well not anywhere but it's it's pretty widespread around the world but those Mm -hmm. unique conditions to ripen it so that you get the proper balance of acidity and alcohol and really the taste profile of the grape that really requires a unique balance of hot hot days and cool nights and that is the one thing the Okanagan Valley does exceptionally well and we can attribute that to the lake. The lake is a real mitigating factor to the weather. Um, it, in, 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 the, in the summertime it really has a cooling effect 
ironically, in the in the winter time, it generally has a bit of a warming effect to help to to get out to some of the freezing events that we've uh, managed to escape until just this year. But it's really about the conditions of, of of ripeness and being able to get the true flavor. And I talk to wine experts from around the world, and what they say that's unique about here in the Okanagan is it's a true representation of that grape. So, for instance, the Sarwag grape uh, is growing uh, in many places around the world, and it's got its each unique uh, features. But if you really want to understand what the true nature of that grape is, not necessarily what you your favorite as an individual might be, but if you want to understand what that grape is meant to taste like, have it from BC, and you'll really understand what the true what the true taste profile is meant to be. I mean, it really is. It's it's wonderful wine. And of course, it's such a great tourism experience to go and visit a winery or a few wineries out in BC. You talk a little bit about the extreme weather event. First of all, the one that took place in the winter of this year, that cold snap that really affected uh, a lot of grapes and a lot of vines. And now the wildfire situation. And we've experienced extreme weather events here in Alberta as well with our wildfires. Of course, we've seen them out east with the massive flooding you know, you talked a little bit about how this is part of climate change. And I think the consensus is that that's the case. So assuming that more of these extreme weather events will keep happening, what are some of the safeguards in place right now, Miles, to protect the wine industry out in BC? Well, I'm glad you asked because we are actually working very closely with the provincial and federal government to look at how to fund and at least help wineries and grape growers maybe replant for those varieties that are more uh, robust for those kinds of conditions. Um, mm. You know, as climate changes, uh, so does the grape and the grape's ability to, 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 to grow within that. And we need to really take a look at what we've planted and where we've planted. If you think about our wine industry here in B.C., you know, we've been growing grapes uh, for 100-plus years, but it's only really been in the last 30 years where we've focused on those quality uh, vinifera is the, is the name of the European-style grapes that we've, we, we replanted with 30 years ago. And we were really just experimenting, not really knowing what was going to grow well and where. And what climate change has is, is taught us is that not everything grows well everywhere. So it's time for a reset, and uh, I think we've got great opportunities. We're some of the most advanced, uh, most technically adapt uh, growers in the world. Uh, we were lucky that we've got people from all over the world have come here with their expertise because this is the new frontier. So combine that with that knowledge and that passion and maybe the ability to replant, uh, we think we can come out of this stronger than uh, we've ever been. Well, we're certainly glad to highlight it. Miles, thank you so much for making the time this evening. I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. I invite uh, every one of your listeners to please uh, at least enjoy, enjoy a BC wine there at home or make plans to come out and uh, visit any time of the year, not just in the summer, but we have a beautiful uh, fall. Uh, you can wine taste in the in the wintertime as well, but uh, spring comes early here in the Okanagan, so uh, make those plans as well. Absolutely. An invite that I think will be graciously accepted by a lot of our listeners. Miles, thank you so much. Cheers. Have you given much thought to how death can inform your life? Our guest is a hospital chaplain making headlines for his profound posts and blog about his experiences with seeing death on the daily Here's an example of some of his content on his Instagram page. He's telling his do- his young daughter he's taking a day off from work. I'm staying home today from work. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm staying home. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's our guest hospital chaplain for Tampa General Hospital and author of The Voices We Carry, J.S. Park. J.S., thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me into this space, and uh, I'm really honored to be here with you. Can you just describe for our listeners what exactly is the role of a hospital chaplain? Because I think there are a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what this job really means. Absolutely. Um, I've been doing this work now for, actually this month will be eight years, and a hospital chaplain, uh, the technical definition, I guess, is a non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence. And so I kind of fit the space between uh, mental health and faith. And so I I make the joke that I'm kind of like a cross between a a priest and a therapist. I'm a therapist. (laughs) And so... uh, yeah, a lot of our role, um, it's pretty tough. I mean, most of it is grief counsel, uh, but I attend every single death in the hospital. We attend uh, Code Blue. We're a level one trauma center, so I'm also attending uh, gunshots, uh, fire, falls, strokes, car accidents. Um, we help with next of kin searches and advanced directives. So it is a broad body of work, and a lot of it is on the worst day of my patient's uh, life. You know, JS, it strikes me as you're saying this, that you're talking about this as just, you know, your general job description. But I, I don't take for granted the magnitude of what it is that you're describing and talking about. And I have so many questions just about how it is that you, as a human being, can deal with all of that. But I just want to go back to something you said really quick here. You said you're non-anxious and non non-judgmental. Is any human being in the world non-anxious and non-judgmental? How do you even... <laughs> How do you even classify that as something that you can you can have as a quality? How do you get there? That's a good question. <laughs> and I wish I could say that uh, I've 100% arrived to, <laughs> you know, perfect zen-like, non-anxiety. Non- <laughs> yeah, I wish I could, I, I could say that uh, for sure. I, of course, enter every room into a new situation where... Of course, uh, I carry in uh, my own perspective and uh, quite a bit of anxiety going from room to room, seeing what I do. Um, But my hope is that I am able to bring a a center of peace and calm while the patient is being surrounded by a swirl of activity, whether that's uh, syringes, uh, nurses coming in and out, physicians, everyone doing their job, but it is a lot of activity. What I'm hoping to bring uh, as a chaplain is that I enter managing my own stuff, making sure I'm not putting any of that on the patient, but as a sounding board, hopefully a place where someone feels safe, that even if I don't have to, I don't have to say a word, and most of my job really is listening. In fact, uh, this interview, Chelsea, you and I, this will be the most that I talk (laughs) all week. Um, Really, a lot of my job is validating this person's story and their struggle as they talk to me about the reason why they're in the hospital or the people that they miss or the hopes that they have and maybe even the dreams that have been uh, cut short because of their illness and injury and condition. And so um, when I enter a room and listen, um, uh, Chelsea, you can see me here on this video. Um, I'm attempting to make eye contact here through this video and uh, here I'm trying to be non-anxious, non-judgmental, listening, trying to be congruent with the patient's emotion. This is not a formula, but this is something that I really try to be present for 
Now, I just want you to notice this, Chelsea. If for one second I turn my eyes away, mm. if you notice that, that broke our connection, even just for a second. If I anxiously check my phone, if a nurse walks by and I just kind of turn away just like that, just like you saw, uh, that creates some anxiety, and maybe the patient feels judged. And so I am tuned in and zoned in as far as I can be in the zone. And I listen to 100% of everything the patient says and validate everything that they're going through. So much of what you're describing, I think, must be something that you sort of learn to do and adapt with the position as you come to understand it and come to understand what it is that patients and humans need in those extreme moments of grief. You just described, you know, being with people on the worst unimaginable day of their lives. It makes me appreciate how much human beings are capable of in that you're able to shoulder so much heaviness day after day. But that being said, I don't know that every human is designed to do something like this and to take this on. What was it that led you to this line of work? Yeah, you know, Chelsea, in my own story growing up, I look back in hindsight through the lens of the ACE score, which you may have heard of, it's adverse childhood experiences, mm -hmm. which measures how much um, trauma uh, that each of us have experienced as a child. And there's 10 questions, and if you answer four or more yes to those questions, for example, did you ever witness your parents hit each other? Um, in the home that you grew up in, where there are these hurtful things that have happened, there's 10 specific questions. After four or more, your chances of being adversely affected in your health increase, they skyrocket. Hmm. So I have an ACE score of a nine out of 10, Whoa. which is very high. And uh, there's something like I have an 1,100% chance of getting a heart attack later in life. Uh, my, I, my bones are at risk of becoming brittle. I can get osteoporosis. My impulse control is supposed to be way off. Um, I may have a high chance of going to jail. There's all these statistics around ACE scores. And when I found that out in hindsight, uh, for one, I was surprised. But two, it explained a lot. And what I wanted to be was potentially, possibly, someone that I did not have growing up, a presence, a person rooting for me and cheering for me in the hardest days of my life. And so to the capacity that I can with the ability that I have, with the training I've been given at Tampa General, I'm hoping to be that presence for those patients that in the center of their trauma and their completely irreversibly changed world, that I can be one person they may not remember my name or my face, but someone who was there with them, hurting with, being with, present with. And that is often very much what I lacked growing up, but what I hope that I can give someone now. Right now, we're talking to a hospital chaplain on deathbed confessions and perspectives. He's J.S. Park, hospital chaplain for Tampa General Hospital and author of the book, The Voices We Carry. So much perspective and understanding about life as someone who sees so much death. And JS, you know, you share all of your profound wisdom on social media. You've got 84, almost 85,000 followers on Instagram, which, of course, in this world, you know, holds a lot of value and a lot of, and a lot of clout. Uh, what made you want to share your experiences and your discoveries with the world? 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the shout out on that. I, <laughs> I I don't know that I, yeah, set out to have quote unquote like a platform or followers <laughs> or anything like that. I, I'm in fact overwhelmed and surprised every day at that. I'm very thankful and grateful. So I feel like I write about really hard things. Um, but what I've noticed is as I'm sharing uh, my experiences and encounters that I've had, of course, details altered for privacy. But as I'm sharing these encounters and experiences, um, maybe the reason why um, people want to read these things, uh, which caught me uh, by surprise, is because uh, these are things that many of us, in fact, most of us, I would say, have had some personal experience with grief and loss mm. or know someone who has. But the conversation, there's some sort of disconnect in which because of discomfort or denial or suppression or simply because of fear, the conversation around grief gets cut short. And we don't get to talk about those feelings of what it is like to live within that terror and hurt of loss. And so I write openly about these things, not uh, with the goal, I don't think, of, you know, come and follow me to hear me talk about it. Um, but rather, I write these things because in some way, uh, for one, I'm sharing, here's what I experienced. But two, um, maybe you would also know that you're not alone in this, uh, that those feelings of fear or even anger about loss, uh, those feelings of deep rage or uh, those feelings of um, really terror and almost a nightmarish quality of losing someone, uh, that we're not alone in that. And that uh, if you feel that, and others have told you, get over it, be strong, you'll be okay, that really we might want somebody to tell us, you know what, it's not okay right now, and it hurts a lot, and I hear you and I'm with you in it. You know, I think not feeling alone is something that is so powerful. Um, we just lost my mother-in-law three weeks ago, and posting it on social media and getting commentary back from strangers saying, you know, I lost this person and I recently went through this. You realize how many people are relating to this silently without really talking about it as much as I think maybe it needs to be talked about. There is a whole community that is going through some level of grief at all times. And what you're doing to understand it and help them through it, I think, is so important and so valuable I wonder if you have advice for people that are going through some stage of grief and how you separate just being there as a human with approaching this with a semblance of a religious perspective. Let's not forget that you are a hospital chaplain. So how do you balance that? Yeah, Chelsea, first of all, can I say, uh, yeah. Um, Chelsea, I'm, I, I do want to say, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear about uh, loss of your mother-in-law. Thank you. Um, three weeks ago. Yeah, three weeks ago, three years ago, 30 years ago, it's that wound is always there. The loss is always there. So I'm really sorry to hear that, Chelsea. So I just wanted to sit with that for a moment. What can we do? What can we say in the midst of grief? Uh, I wish that there was an easy formula for this. You know, because grief is so universal in that we all experience it when we feel loss, we feel the pain of grief. And yet each of us also have a different language about how we're going to process and experience that grief. So there's something universal about something so specific. But I can say, I think, as I alluded to earlier, naming it is very important. 
not denying it or suppressing it, and then validating those feelings. And those feelings are going to run a very, very broad range, whether that's tears and shouting and screaming, rocking our body back and forth, rolling on the floor. I've seen that all. Or numbness, no tears at all, being unable to speak, cognitive fog, um, not being able to make decisions quickly, wanting to stay in bed all day. These extreme reactions and these, this extreme shutdown, both of those are very, very valid expressions of grief. Uh, so can we validate that? And then I would say um, ritualizing. I know that that's not always a favorite word for everyone, mm-hmm. but ritualizing, and, and what I mean by that is honoring the memory of the person who's gone or even the dream that is gone, honoring it somehow. So in Korea, for example, we have Chesa, which is death day, uh, we celebrate not only birthdays, but death days. Hmm. So the mother or father, grandmother, grandfather, and our family, uh, each year we get together and we commemorate, celebrate, and honor uh, the person who has died before us, who has poured into us. And we may share a story about them. We may hold a, a religious service for them. Uh, we read a timeline of their accomplishments or the things that they did in their life so that we remember and honor the way that their life Uh, gave us life and uh, I think maybe there is something cultural where we feel like oh we can't bring up the dead anymore that's behind us that's in the past but I think that there is something beautiful and healing and powerfully necessary about honoring the loss and naming it and calling it forth and whatever that loss might be or whoever it may be in some way can we ritualize the memory of that person to keep them close to us because I've really learned that grief is less about letting go and it's more about letting in. JS, to be able to shoulder seeing things like grieving families and talking to people on their deathbeds, you know, I think most people would agree that that's really not a role for everyone. Why do you think that you are in this role and doing this with your life? You know, um, I mentioned earlier about um, being afflicted by so much childhood trauma that um, I wanted to be the voice and the presence that I didn't have growing up. Um, I can say also that it does take a special, I think, type of person or calling uh, to be in the room of those who are grieving. And shout out to all my coworkers. They all have the thing that makes them that non-anxious, non-judgmental comforting presence to be in those rooms. And the first time that, uh, it was probably my first week of work that I did this eight years ago, when I started eight years ago, um, I was in a room wondering, am I in the right place? Do I belong here? Is this something I can really do? Um, And uh, on that first visit, um, I saw someone die, and I accompanied a physician Uh, to break the news to the family in the waiting room. And uh, I've seen this now so many times, dozens if not hundreds of times. Um, But when I was there, all I can say is, is that as I was a silent presence and witness, offering consolation and comfort to this family, I felt so strongly the discomfort of this grief, of almost wanting to run away from it, but also feeling this divine calling that, I am here to be with them, and I am called to them. 
And I, I wish I had a more specific or better answer than that for <laughs> you, Chelsea. But really, when each of us find the thing that we're called for, it's almost like I know that I belong in this room and this is what I'm made for and here for. And I hope everyone finds that because I know that I have and I'm with coworkers who I feel that they're just as called uh, to the work that we're doing. How much does religion play into this or or does it? You know, I, I notice even in your biography on your Instagram page, you say you're an ex-atheist. So can you speak to that, that experience that you've had? I feel like there's a journey there that needs explaining. Chelsea, so I can speak broadly and specifically. So in, in general, chaplains are interfaith, meaning that we will see anyone and everyone. Uh, we answer a lot of our uh, consults by, by request. Um, but uh, as chaplains, we don't necessarily bring up religion unless our patient does. Um, uh, because when we, when we enter rooms, we're not entering necessarily as a religious person first. We're entering as a presence first. So I like to say that pastors and churches, they preach, they impart information, but chaplains, we are a presence we sit with. And so um, I hardly ever push that angle, Chelsea, unless the patient has some sort of theological struggle, or which they often do, or they want to bring up God, or they're really struggling with feelings of hate or anger towards God, or feeling like God has just been very uh, ambivalent towards them. I will talk through those things all day with them if they want. Um, but for me, what I know is, and I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, I do feel strongly a divine calling to this work. And uh, also, if there's any way in the work that I do that I can somehow show the love of God through being with and sitting with, then that's what I'm there for, whether I name God or not. Um, I believe that the love, love of God is present in that room. And so I, I don't often Bible verse people, uh, Chelsea, <laughs> but there is one verse of scripture that uh, I feel like informs my entire theology and, and sort of my practice. It's uh, for John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God loves, uh, God's love lives in us. And so that for me is so powerful in that in these rooms, sometimes they, a lot of my patients feel like God has abandoned them. And so the way that I can show them God without pushing the theology on them, without proselytizing, is being with them and present and listening to their pain. And maybe in some sense, then something like God shows up in the room. You know, JS, I think you have this undeniable quality about you that instantly puts people at ease and comforts them. You have you have absolutely found your calling at least for what it means from the conversation that we've had, that's definitely what I'm getting from this from this takeaway. We're recording this via Teams. You're on video. I'm not. But I need you to know that I did have a list of questions, and I haven't even looked at it once. I've just been, like, staring into your soul this entire time, even though you can't see me. So thank you so much for, for making the time for our program tonight. You've certainly had an impact on me, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Really appreciate all of your incredible work and for talking about it with us tonight. Chelsea, thank you so much, and uh, much gentleness and peace to you and everyone who's listening. Thank you.